KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Today is the third day of in-person voting, and of course tomorrow is election day, the final day to cast your ballot or postmark your mail-in ballot. With more voting options in California this year, the ballot count and the reporting of election results will be a little bit different. For the first time, there are consolidated precincts that will be reporting from Superpoll locations, which will be open three days before November 3rd. Here's San Diego County Registrar of Voters, Michael Vu. So on election night, the election results for that first report will not just be mail ballots, but it'll also be those polling place ballots that were cast on October 31st, November 1st, as well as November 2nd. Mail-in ballots need to be postmarked by election night. They have 17 days thereafter to get to the registrar's office. Keep in mind, the certification of election results is expected to be delayed this year. We'll find out tomorrow, once again, if San Diego County stays out of the purple, most restrictive tier of COVID-19 regulations. For restaurant and bar owners in San Diego, the pandemic has been a roller coaster of having to open and close their businesses again, while also adapting to new regulations. Rosa Butner owns Peck's Bar in North Park. She says putting in safety measures and outdoor seating cost her about $60,000. I don't even care to make money. I just want to break even and keep my employees uh, employed. That's basically my goal. Butner says no one has been able to tell her whether she'll be able to keep the outdoor restaurant once the pandemic has passed. It's Monday, November 2nd. It is the second and final day of Dia de los Muertos celebrations. This is San Diego News Matters from KPBS News. I'm Annika Colbert. Stay with me for more of the local news you need to start your day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Thousands of Californians went to the polls this weekend, and more are expected to line up on Election Day. CAP Radio's healthcare reporter Sammy Kayola looks at voting during the pandemic. When Delfina Vargas heard Sacramento County was looking for poll workers, she didn't hesitate. I heard that people were needed and they were looking for individuals who were healthy and not immunocompromised. I decided to sign up. She says the first few days were busy, but not overwhelming. Voters mostly kept their distance. When she checks them in, she's behind plexiglass. But she says she's still a little worried. I've been indoors with various people. And even though I'm always masked and I'm wearing, and I'm using hand sanitizer, I, I just, you know, d- didn't want to assume that I was, I was in the clear. The state requires counties to set up polling places with certain safety guidelines. Health officials say if you do feel you've been exposed at the polls, wait at least five days to get a test. In Sacramento, I'm Sammy Kayola. <music> 
Nearly 9 in 10 college students who qualify for California's food stamp program don't take advantage of the benefits. That's according to a new analysis from the Century Foundation, a progressive think tank in New York. So every single month, about $100 million in food benefits is sitting on the table for these students to claim if they applied. Peter Granville authored the report, which looked at data from 2018 and 2019. And I think it's important that we make sure that students who probably are eligible are being encouraged to apply. But so often that messaging might not be getting to them. Early in the pandemic, California took measures to further expand the number of college students eligible for food stamps. The state asked the federal government to waive certain requirements, such as working 20 hours a week in addition to taking classes. That was to boost student participation in the program. The U.S. Department of Agriculture denied the request. As wildfire season worsens, California researchers are finding that data about wildfires and their impact is difficult to find. A new report highlights the need for a statewide system to share information. Cap Radio's Ezra David Romero reports. There's a lot of data being collected, everything from acres burned to fire personnel. But researchers found it's not always easily accessible. Michael Wara is with the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment. He says California California needs a one-stop shop for data, which could be modeled after a recently created water database. So that when the governor wants to know what are the water impacts from the fires we've had this season, you know, his staff can go and look in one place and get that answer. Right now, that's not really possible. The authors found there aren't comprehensive statewide indexes for tracking wildfire prevention, health impacts from smoke, or even the cost of power shutoffs. Wara says creating a single database for all that could save lives, potentially reduce the pace and scale of wildfires, and unite the state on the fire front. In Sacramento, I'm Ezra David Romero. Southern California experienced the impact of a changing climate through the summer and fall as heat and flames left their mark. A warming climate was a key talking point for national political candidates last year, but then the pandemic happened. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says the issue was pushed to the edge of the national spotlight. California is enduring unprecedented wildfires. San Diego's Valley Fire was the largest locally, with scores of homes and more than 16,000 acres left blackened by the flames. Warmer temperatures, drier fuels, and uh, this is leading to these uh, extreme fire seasons. Tom Coringham is a researcher at the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. In the western U.S., we still have fires burning now in Colorado. Uh, we have fires um, in California, historical uh, levels of acres burned. More than 4 million acres burned this year alone. 31 people died. More than 9,200 structures were destroyed. On top of that, scientists saw record high temperatures, 130 degrees in Death Valley in August. Then September, the hottest month ever. The higher temperatures leads to melting of uh, the ice caps in the Arctic, in um, Greenland and in Antarctica. The scientific community says those events are all calling cards of a changing climate. There's no way that these fires are natural. This is a, you know, way, way outside of any possible 
natural occurrence. Scripps Institution of Oceanography researcher Jeffrey Severinghouse found ancient evidence of change as he examined ice cores in polar regions. There's lots of undeniable evidence. <laughs> it's like it's no longer remotely in, in debate. And in California, climate change has broken through and become part of the political debate. In California elections, we see a lot of discussion about climate change, in part because both sides recognize that it's a, a, a real physical challenge to our state. Thad Kowser is a political scientist at UCSD. He says major party candidates in San Diego County and California ignore climate change at their own peril. Kowser says the issue is important because voters are getting firsthand proof that a changing climate will affect them. When you see wildfires and when you when you see seawater rise and the floods that come from that, when you see hurricanes in the, in the Gulf Coast, the, these physical embodiments of climate change, I think, are what will bring it from, from an issue that right now is in the top 10 of most voters' concerns to an issue that will be a, a top-tier issue that, that every politician will need to address. But California's acceptance of climate change has not broken through in a meaningful way in the national political arena. And I welcome you to the final 2020 presidential debate between Climate change was a discussion issue in the debate between President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden. Trump touted the clean air and water under his administration. Biden called climate change the existential crisis of our time. However, the candidates spent most of the time on the topic attacking each other's economic policies. UCSD professor David Victor says the national discussion has evolved. During the primary season, there was a huge amount of attention to climate because this is one of the areas where the Democratic candidates differentiated themselves. Once you go into the general... This, is, this election is largely a referendum on the incumbent, as most uh, elections that involve incumbents are. And in these times, given what's going on with the pandemic and the economy and so on, it's a referendum to an even greater degree. And, and frankly, most people are not making their decisions between the two major candidates on the basis of their climate change policies. And Victor says everyone has to be part of the solution. So the national debate needs to start looking like the debate in California. We as a state are less than 1% of global emissions. And so everything we do here needs to be evaluated through the lens of how it increases the odds that other places do similar things. Victor says climate change has to be part of the national discussion because dealing with climate change requires a national solution. That was KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Coming up on the podcast, a record wildfire season has renewed a national conversation about forest management. But it's not as simple as it might sound. We're not going to get ahead of this in that way. We're riding the tiger. There are too many things coming at us too fast. The final story in our series about fire and water in the West, up next after this break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. 
After decades of trying to get ahead of the problem of the West's big fires, it seems we're still behind. The massive fires that have burned this year don't just alter forests, they impact water supplies for people and the environment. But those megafires could refocus efforts to better manage forests. In the final story in our series on where water and wildfire meet in the West, Ron Dungan from KJZZ in Phoenix reports. In June of 2002, nearly half a million acres burned in the Arizona high country. The Rodeo Chattisky Fire was the largest fire in Arizona history at the time, and it got everyone's attention. There was too much fuel in the forest, and something needed to be done. So I think the first thing to to recognize is that the Southwest and California are, are built to burn. That's Arizona State University professor Stephen Pine. We get lots of dry lightning. We're we're the epicenter for lightning-caused fires in the United States. Ponderosa forests evolved with fire. Modest-sized fires would burn grasses, small trees, and brush, but leave the big trees standing. Then overgrazing and fire suppression removed grasses and allowed small trees to grow unchecked. By the time foresters figured out the problem, megafires were on the way. Ethan Amick is with the Grand Canyon Trust. He remembers 10,000-acre thinning projects in the 90s, which felt like significant progress. We realized that we were not working at the scale at which wildfire was working. And so Arizona ranchers, conservationists, politicians, foresters, and local communities put aside their differences and came up with a plan, the Four Forest Restoration Initiative, FORFRI for short. Amick says the goal was to thin more than 2 million acres across the state, from the Grand Canyon to New Mexico. The, the problem is not getting smaller. The problem is only getting larger in, in Arizona. The same can be said across the West. There are two ways to thin the forest, cutting and burning. Forfry did both. The target for cutting is small diameter trees. That's different from traditional logging, which takes the big fire-resistant ones. Elvie Barton is with Salt River Project, which provides power and water for the Phoenix metro area through a series of dams. She says forests aren't just for wildlife and hiking. They're often headwaters for crucial rivers and streams the region's biggest cities rely on. We all have overgrown forests. We have endangered species. We have um, large catastrophic wildfires that are, you know, coming through and just devastating these landscapes and having these horrible impacts on communities and the water supplies. Although Forfry seemed to address the problem on paper, companies hired to thin the forest failed to deliver. The forest kept growing, and in 2011, the Wallow Fire took out another half a million acres in eastern Arizona. Climate change, drought, and growing housing development have made the problem more complex. Different ecosystems of different fire regimes, and today's fires can jump from one to the next. Fire historian Pine says that firefighters are allowing some fires to burn within certain parameters. I'm seeing a lot of from fire officers on the ground that we're not going to get ahead of this in that way. We're riding the tiger. There are too many things coming at us too fast, changing things too rapidly. We're having to work with what we're given. Using prescribed burns to thin the forest is complicated. But Forfry is beginning to meet its targets. The project has also done work in springs and watershed restoration. And not all wildfires are catastrophic. Some places that burn recover, like Canyon Creek, which burned in Rodeo Chetiskai. The Forest Service hopes to ramp up thinning in the near future. But Grand Canyon Trust's Ethan Amick wonders if we can correct past mistakes. On the other hand, I actually feel very optimistic and sometimes foolishly so that we can solve this problem, and I I really think the question is, can we do it in time? Charlie Esther is with Salt River Project. He says he thinks that 4Fry can work if it moves forward one step at a time. 
we're not giving up. We're going to continue. The Forest Service is not giving up. They're going to continue. The collaborative is not giving up. We we all have to work together. We all have this common goal. And I'm very positive about the future of of our forest ecosystem. Eighteen years later, you can still see the scars from Rodeo Chetuskai at Canyon Creek. But there are trees standing, and clear water is flowing. You'll find trout in the stream, elk in the hills, coyotes. More fires are coming. The only question is how hot they will burn and how much ground they will consume. That was KJZZ's Ron Dungan reporting from Phoenix, Arizona. This story is the last in a series produced by KUNC, KJZZ, KHOL, Aspen Public Radio, and Wyoming Public Radio. Support comes from the Walton Family Foundation. That's it for the podcast today. And if you're voting today, I hope you have a safe voting experience and also a safe and fun second day of Dia de los Muertos celebrations. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com.